Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And dear listeners, these are some dark times that we're going through Europe. We all know what's happening in Ukraine. Actually, my colleague Leszek already recorded a conversation with Olya Konasevich. She's Ukrainian journalist and editor-in-chief of the Ukrainian news platform 24TV.ua. This you can find on episode 102. And to continue to talk about Ukraine and Ukrainian people, I asked Paul Fridges to come back to the podcast. You met him at episode 96, where he came and talked to me about his book In Ukraine Adrift, a great read that I strongly recommend. And we're going to go into what Ukrainians are in resilience, in humor, in courage, what we're seeing right now with this terrible attack from the Russian Federation, and that Paul knows intimately because he spent time in Ukraine and with Ukrainians. And by the end of the conversation, we're actually going to go into a little bit what you, dear listener, can do to help the Ukrainian people. So with no further ado, I bring you Paul Fridges, and we're going to talk about Ukraine and Ukrainian people. I'm here with Paul Fridges. Paul, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. Thank you. Well, I would like to have you here in a better moment than this one, of course. Um, but you are the right person to talk to me and give us an insight that you have, particularly because of the time you spend in Ukraine, your travels in the country, you get to know people. It's all in your book, actually, the book that we talked on podcast 96, and that is In Ukraine Adrift. And maybe let's start with that. Let's start with, tell us a little bit, now it's, of course, it's very pertinent to your book, but even before the crisis, what was the reaction of people to this work of yours? Yes, well, I think the, the reaction was generally positive um, because it was published in both Swedish, Ukrainian, and then in English as well. So um, uh, it's always a, a special test when it comes into the the, the native language or the the uh, Ukrainian language, uh, which makes it more prone to be scrutinized by people who know more about the country than I do. So, <laughs> but uh, nobody True. seemed to um, have any uh, major, uh, uh, pro there weren't any major protests concerning the book. And so I, I enjoyed I enjoyed meeting people, talking about the book and talking about Ukraine. And I was hoping to bring Ukraine into Europe in some way. This was a project mm -hmm. sort of making it sort of pushing the uh, Ukraine's European identity, which is very much in the making. I, I would think it's written in a light vein, but uh, I'm very, of course, very saddened and shocked and that Ukraine now has become uh, on everybody's minds, but for all the wrong reasons. And the European perspective does come across very easily on your book as we read it. You do focus a couple of times on that particular point, which was the, in your opinion, and please correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong, but you did feel that Ukrainians are leaning more to, uh, to Europe and to European Union and Western Europe. Yes, drifting is an even more apt uh, word, I think. Because it, you know, it has. They used to talk uh, Mikhail Ryabchuk, the pretty famous intellectual in Ukraine that I spoke with when I was in Kiev. 
he he has he launched one of the that expression about the two Ukraines and the Russia and uh, the the eastern uh, leaning Russian part and the 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 other part that was more have another attitude it was more like more of identities than of uh, languages and cultures so it's not cultures but it was there were two ukraines but what i think has happened now is when it's drifting west is that the whole identity is being established firmly as pro-european and european and that's very much thanks to to mr putin so what he has done as opposed to what we wanted to do, is to establish Ukraine as a mm-hmm. European country. That's a great point. And also, I think all the solidarity that has been shown, and not only solidarity, but actually intervention in the conflict from the European Union. Oh, yes, certainly. I mean, I, I had a look yesterday. I think it's about uh, seven countries, uh, roughly, that has sent arms, including Sweden, which has never been the case, uh, not even during the Second World War. You know, we, we stayed out of the war as, as much as possible, trying to be neutral. We even let the, the Germans pass through Sweden to get iron uh, to, to the weapons, which is a, a dark chapter in our, in our um, history. But we had, you know, we had our special reasons. I'm not going to get into that. But... As opposed to that, we have now actually sent arms and anti-tank together with helmets and with also humanitarian aid, of course. But it was a pretty new and uh, maybe even surprising step, with, but with a very strong majority in the Swedish parliament uh, last week supporting uh, arm, arming uh, Ukraine. Well, don't feel too bad about the history of Sweden collaborating with the Nazis. Here in Portugal, we also wanted to be neutral, but at the same time, we were selling Wolframium from our mines to the Hitler regime. Now, let's but let's talk a little bit about your perspective, because that is the reason why I have you on the podcast. And we're going to get into the fact that now all of a sudden, that that adrift that you mentioned and so elegantly so now it's not an adrift now it's concrete actually we just saw that Zelensky asked officially to get into the European Union but before that let's talk about your perspective and we were talking before we start recording there are people in Ukraine that you know and that you care about so tell us where is your mind right now yes well of course it's it's it it, it was very shocking when this happened because i i never thought that uh, putin was the type that would do such a stupid thing because it, it's going to be the beginning of the end of his regime and his power and i always thought him and i saw him to be a a power monger a calculating man a very fact oriented Uh, Machiavellian type. Uh, But now, uh, with this full-out attack and the bombings, uh, that makes him into a sort of uh, a a maniac, Uh, somebody who's uh, aspiring to have a a thousand-year empire, trying to build that with all the almighty power he can muster. So I was surprised. I was actually surprised because I didn't see that in him. And and I know you heard a lot about him and he's being isolated and not using the internet and so on. But I I I've also heard people saying that he is fact oriented and he he wants to play the power as much as possible. But this was something that sort of has grown up inside him 
And I was I was a bit surprised. I wasn't completely taken aback, but I was surprised that he was so stupid and he has been so stupid. Very interesting point that you just raised, because on one hand, yes, it is true that is very calculistic, KGB minded kind of, you know, way of operating. But on the other hand, he already mentioned it several times in public discourse. One of them, for example, is in Munich that he thinks that the end of the Soviet Union was one of the worst things that could have happened. So my question to you is, and it's impossible for us to know, we're not psychologists, we're not in, at Kremlin watching things happening, but could there be an obsession about just getting again that sphere of influence coming out of Moscow and he wants to give that to the Russian people? Yeah, definitely. I mean, of course, yeah. But things like that is normal people realize, for instance, I would, for instance, be would be glad to be the, the um, prime minister of Sweden or the president in the United States. That would be great. But I realize that it's not within the grasp of my, my power to attain that. I can't be the prime minister of Sweden or the president in the United States. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm too old. I don't uh, I'm not into that uh, in that field and I'm not uh, talented enough. So what do I do? I don't I don't run into the parliament and uh, with a gun and saying like uh, Colonel Tejero did in in Spain in, in the 80s uh, and and think that I can be a prime minister. So that that still surprised me. What you want and uh, still yeah, of course you want to do that as you said. You want to give that to the Russian people to restore the glory of the empire. But things you, you, can't, you there's a lot of things you can't do, even if you want to do them. And I, I thought he would realize that this is not something he could get away with. Now let's uh, shift gears and talk about the real heroes in this situation, and that is the Ukrainian people. And again, you you were there, you talk with them, you see the society, you saw the, the dynamics. And one thing one silver lining, if there is one, is to see the resilience of the Ukrainian people against some very, very bad odds and the way that they'll be able to resist the machinery around them from the east, from the south, from the north. So tell us a little about a little bit, a little bit about that. I'm sure that was not a surprise for you. As you ask me about the people, you know, I, I still that has been very touching the last days. You know, I've had contact with people sitting in shelters. Uh, uh, in uh, mostly in Kiev and in Kharkiv, and it's it's very hard. I I never write messages and ask how do you do, <laughs> or how you're feeling fine because I know you're not feeling fine. So I, would, I just sent one message to a journalist, Yuri Larin, in um, in Kharkiv, and I said uh, I just said, hey, can I do anything for you? And the girl said, I'm in a shelter here, and there's nothing you can do to help me. And I just realized he was like, I felt like he was thrown back into, into the, the 20th century, the mid-20th century. Mm. Because we were sitting in, in, in the restaurant Fabrica in Kharkiv, in a very modern hipster sort of place two years ago, having a meal. And, and, and he was just talking about how European Kharkiv, the identity of Kharkiv was, and and uh, we were talking about that and about journalism and so on, uh, and and we were talking about the IT industry, which is very big in in Kharkiv. It's huge. A lot of IT industries that make the programming there from Western firms and Western companies, they make the production there. 
So it was very much, I was stepping into a ground that has, you know, arising from the history into something new and good. And two years later, he's been thrown back into the, the depth of the, the most darkest hours of the uh, 20th century. That's how it feels. They could have collapsed. So what I mean by that, they could have, I'm not going to say like half of the population could have just said the other half, well, we'll take it, you know, the Russians will take over. What, what will be different? It's amazing the way that the, the, the country and the people and, and Zelensky was able to say, all right, this is our common enemy and we will not give up. We will not surrender. We will fight to the death. Again, I, I think, you know, looking now, it's kind of, uh, of course, they would have to do that. That would be the only thing that they would have to do. But it, it, I'm sure that is not that linear. I'm sure that there, 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 there could have been another reality where Ukraine would just fold it and say, all right, we'll be Russians now for some time until we have another maiden revolution and go from there. I'm also very uh, impressed. I'm not surprised, but impressed by the the willingness to to stand up and be uh, do he heroic resistance and uh, you you have to know that the time uh, the russian military have to to conclude this operation is not eternal and i've read about you know i'm definitely not a military specialist or a strategist specialist but you know those who are specialists they'd say you know in 10 days in 10 days you must have concluded the stuff otherwise you run out of support lines and munitions and power and and uh, a lot of things go bad and it has gone very bad for for russia so far but at the same time you know russia is a big country and they have a large uh, and a vast military resources and they just throw into it uh, more and more they managed to trample down uh, pretty superior resistance. So we, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen when it comes to if they try to surround Kiev, but it certainly hasn't gone the way that uh, Putin thought it would go. Mostly because he's not used to this uh, large operation uh, like a, a war, because this is, he's grounded in the security thinking of the KGB. That's where he grew up and that's what formed him mm -hmm. to be doing small sting operations and, and uh, stealth operations. So the war is just a th has been a theory to him. And, and now this is the reality. And hopefully it goes very bad for him. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you, again, for your experience, is the fact that the Ukrainian people have been able to maintain a certain levity, a certain humor, uh, a certain ingenuity. Uh, we see things coming out of Ukraine that I think to myself, how can you possibly be funny at this particular moment? And this goes from messages in highway signs to that gentleman that stopped the car with a, 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 a tank from Russia with no gas. And he just, out of the blue, just goes like, you want me to tow the, the, the tank back to Russia? It's, it's just amazing to see this kind of things, the balls they have. So again, um, not as you just said a minute ago, not a surprise, but it, still, it is something amazing to see. Did you saw that? Did you felt that? Yes, I, I, certainly. I think that uh, goes way back to Nikolai Gogol and his writing. Uh, Taras Bulba was one of those types of person from the literature, which has been like a, a, a typical Ukraine figure. The 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 
the peasant that, uh, what do you call it, streetwise, Jack the Lad, who knows how to, to, to find his way around with cleverness and a little cheeky attitude. Uh, so that's something very grounded in, in the Ukrainian psyche with their, shall we say, underclass identity and being the small Russians, as they were uh, known before, small Russians, little Russians. Um, and that while the, the Russians have the, more of the identity of being the main character, a bit more perhaps pompous, whilst, whilst this, this figure of uh, cheeky and joking is certainly something I've, I've experienced in, in uh, Ukraine. And I have a couple of good examples of, of that. I just think um, it's, it's freaking amazing. How can you be... Because this is life and death. This is not just like, oh, okay, we'll, the Russians will take over the government and that's what it's going to be. There are concrete evidence from Western intelligence agencies saying that they're like kill lists coming out of the Kremlin. If these people are found, they'll be, they'll be shot, they'll be dead. And, uh, and that is just... It's just so, so scary and so um, unbelievable. Now, going a little bit into uh, what we're seeing right now. And in your book, you do go into that particular point. We already uh, touched upon it, which is the, a little bit of a Rosophile tradition. They were joined at one time. They have um, historically very strong bonds. But now, of course, it's all in. We don't want to be Russians. We don't want to have Russians in our soil. And actually, we're going to turn to Europe and to the European Union full tilt. What is your analysis on that? Do you think that this is just a spur of the moment thing or the tide has turned? No, I think this is uh, uh, something that uh, will remain in, in place. That attitude, that, that identity shift is nothing you can roll back. It could have been that if if, if Putin was had been more strategic, it wouldn't have been like that. I mean, but since since the, with you know with this pressure, it's like uh, a man, a woman divorcing a man, and he comes back and uh, at one moment he's begging for kisses, and the second moment, second moment he's he's beating his wife, and that's not a good way to to build a cracking relationship. So I think this is this drift west will. Uh, continue and I don't think there's any possibility of turning it back now partly because of the war that's been going on since 2014 and and even more because of the uh, the Maidan and the the what's happening now this is the nail in the coffin for for that relationship what comes next on that particular point and that is of course this will have to end this is going to end in some way that there's a lot of recovery that has to happen. There's a lot of building up things and, and getting things on track again. But in your in your assessment, this this proximity now that we have and the European Union already is uh, saving money. We just thought as we were recording this, Poland just proposed a hundred billion uh, euros recovery from recovery fund from Ukraine. So I think my question to you is. Of course, there's going to be a long road ahead because Ukraine cannot join the European Union tomorrow. And people have to recover. People have to recover from this trauma. So how do you think that process will happen? Will it be faster than we 
Westerner thinks because, again, of the resilience of the Ukrainian people or these wounds run very, very deep and that there's going to be a long time for Ukraine to, to rise from, from this uh, terrible situation? Well, I think if, if there are people ousting uh, Vladimir Putin from power, then that could change the um, dynamic quite a lot. And that could be a room for improvement and a sort of reconciliation, not as being a, a, a country that's a part of Russia, but being at ease with its neighbor, uh, which they have very strong bonds, historical bonds with. Um, so that would be that would be a solution, you know, the best solution, of course. But if that doesn't happen, then th this ter terrible situation we have now will just continue. Then again, I'm not a political, I'm not a military uh, strategic specialist, so I do not know what is going to be the outcome, the military outcome of this operation. Uh, I just, I just uh, read from specialists that you know you have a, a window opportunity uh, that that is not eternal. It's maybe ten days, and you have to conclude such an operation because it, it uh, one safe way of making it to a real. Uh, misery for Russia, which uh, is to make it as a uh, Afghanistan, uh, and uh, Afghanistan with continuous media coverage and uh, enormous resistance from a country you feel very close to. That is a fantastic point. That Paul, that is a fantastic point. Actually, I wrote that. Um, on my Twitter account, which is, doesn't have a lot of followers. But uh, the thing I wrote was that I am sure that even as you say, and very correctly so, this will keep being a low-grade military intervention. The Ukraine is going to make Afghanistan look like a joke for the Russians. <laughs> and I surely hope so. Now, the other thing that you're mentioning, and you're absolutely right, and that is we already seeing some of Russian military uh, equipment running out of gas, running out of food, running out of weapons. So, yeah, and now there's all this wave of support coming from Europe, like Sweden, as you just mentioned, and, but other countries that are also giving uh, military aid and little military aid. All right. So, Paul, let's try to finish this in a positive note. I already donated to a couple of organizations, but please tell us then what have you been doing and what would you ask our listeners to do if they can? Well, you know, I tried yesterday to send money direct to a private account to a, a colleague who is in a shelter in, in Kiev, uh, mainly for helping women. But uh, I, I had to, it, it wouldn't work out with my uh, bank. So I had to send it to a friend in, in Croatia who apparently has a better way to sending money in with lower fees and so on. So uh, I would refrain from sending money directly if you don't have a good uh, connect, uh, connections. But I, I think uh, there's so many support organizations and uh, relief organizations now that have uh, are f fully focused on Ukraine, like Red Cross, a World Food Program, uh, Doctors Without Borders, Amnesty International. And I think, you know, whatever taste you have, I think it would all do uh, good in Ukraine. And I think uh, when it comes to military aid, I think it's, well, for me, I think it's better to let the governments 
take care of that, uh, my point of view at least. I mean, there's so many countries now in Western Europe that have decided to send uh, armaments, military aid to Ukraine. And that's very good. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad, I'm happy that Sweden can make up for its uh, slightly uh, evasive attitude during the Second World War. And now we can actually support the good cause. Listen, Paul, I, I again, I would have liked to have you here in a different uh, situation, but let's do this. Uh, once Ukraine is free from this invasion, once Ukraine is rising again, working on their way to become a full member of the European Union, we're going to have you back on the podcast and we're going to throw a party. We're going to, <laughs> we're going to reminisce from all the you know, all the good things that we should reminisce and and not forgetting, of course, but trying to overcome all these tragedies that we're seeing now in Ukraine. So I'm going to thank you again. I don't know if you want to leave us one final thought. One point worth bringing up is that this war is not only about Ukraine and one country. I think this has a very symbolic meaning and bearing this is about the the survival of the liberal democracy in the world if it has to if it has the politi- the power to substa- sustain itself uh, or against the the autocratic dictators of the world so this is, has a very it has a huge uh, symbolic significance so this is a war that the the the, the democratic countries has to win in some way. I've been talking with Paul Fridges. The book is In Ukraine Adrift. Now more than ever, it's a great read because it shows a country that was already an amazing country before all this is happening. And like you said, Paul, I'm sure it will get back to his not only glory days, but it will be be even better in the near future. Paul, thank you so much for talking to me and coming to the podcast. Thank you and Slava Ukraini. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and has the support of the Social Liberal Movement in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>